Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game. I am Kevin Day and he is Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire and we are both sulking a little bit because we had a five-star review this week for Producer Guy. <laughs> we did indeed. We should... <laughs> yeah, apparently he does a very good job and is extremely prudent with his money, I'll say he is. But um, it's an outrage, Kieran, isn't it? It's just shocking. You you, you asking for five-star reviews at the end of the pod and people are going, the producer's great. I think I love, love the values. <laughs> well, well he's, he's very good at telling us off when we use the wrong microphone and things of that nature. So perhaps, yeah. perhaps the listeners appreciate that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. He won't be telling us off today after he says, yeah, well done for mentioning the five-star review. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, we're, we're recording this on a Sunday morning, as I think people know to go on Monday, but... Uh, Sounds to me, Kieran, by the sound of that chuckle, that you might have one of your special water hangovers after last <laughs> night. Uh, yes, 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 it was a case of get up early this morning, hello trees, hello sky, hello sun. I, I was even more irritatingly cheerful than normal. I, 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 I was particularly pleased with the Newcastle goalkeeper last night who seemed totally baffled by the idea that his goal had a post on either side. Yes. Because <laughs> so he stood there for the first two goals thinking, I've got this side covered. They'll have to do something. Spe- oh, my God. <laughs> this, this team are working on levels I can't begin to comprehend. They were, they were uh, Newcastle were in trouble, aren't they, Kieran? I think they were poor. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is not a football discussion show, as we both oh, yeah. know. But yeah, I, I've got lots of friends in Newcastle and, uh, yeah, I do feel for them because... It, it it is a great city, um, and, and it's a it, it's a proper cathedral of a football ground as well. Uh, and, and for anybody that has not been there, uh, yeah, the big market on a Saturday night is the eighth wonder of the world, in my opinion. Yeah, that, and and yeah, for those of you who are around the world, that's big with two G's. Kieran's not just going, oh, that's a big market, isn't it? <laughs> um, I, I believe their their expected goals uh, last night was one of the lowest ever in the Premier League, whereas. Which is in sharp contrast to yours. But, um, yes. It's unfortunately, Kieran, as you say, this is not a, f- a football discussion pod because the guy really does get cross if we start talking about actual football. It's, it's questions day, and we have some doozies, some doozies. So it's time for only one news story, Kieran. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a question: Who are Team Viewer, and why have they just smashed the Premier League's record shirt sponsor deal? Team Viewer are a German uh, software company and they have signed a deal with Manchester United, presumably to increase their profile. Um, so this this replaces the Chevrolet deal um, and, and the Chevrolet deal wasn't particularly successful for Chevrolet. It was certainly successful for Manchester United. Um, Chevrolet sold 16 cars in the UK. Which, which is indicative of well, perhaps perhaps we, the strategy is not quite right here. Um, yeah, Manchester United will of course claim that Chevrolet are a global brand. Uh, so, so yeah, this this German company, um, it's it's less money for the front of shirt sponsorship than the existing deal with Chevrolet. But Chevrolet were also Manchester United's official car sponsor, um, which I believe and I believe they they supplied the club with sixteen cars. Um, the 16 they bought, you mean? Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, got you. Um, so uh, it, it, it's it's still a good deal by uh, the rest of the Premier League standards. It's it's not an increase 
um, as, as far as the, the, the long-term deal that, that Chevrolet had. Uh, but it is indicative that Manchester United are still a global brand. It was it was interesting looking at the share price of both of the parties um, after the deal was announced. Manchester United went up slightly. Um, the German software company's share price fell by nearly eighteen oh. percent. Oh, which which would suggest that uh, the market thinks that team viewers have lost their minds. So, you know, we spoke at length on our last um, news pod, Kieran, about Avram Glazer selling a lot of shares. These, this won't be linked. That Him selling those shares and the announcement of a new sponsorship deal won't be linked in any sort of way. Well, there's no kind of midsummer murders, skullduggery going on here. Um, one, one would hope not. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he was aware of the deal. Uh, you know, Manchester United are not getting a lot more money. So therefore, when you're valuing a business, you, you look at normally the, the future cash flows generated by the business. So Manchester United are broadly on a, on a similar similar level to where we are at present in terms of commercial sponsorship. Uh, the, the reason why the stock markets have, have liked them over the course of the next, uh, over the last 12 months, is they perceive that the broadcasting money is going to go up because Manchester United and Liverpool will get their will get their way in some way, shape, or form in terms of taking more control over the TV monies. Yeah, and it occurs to me, producer guy might not get so many five star reviews if people knew that he willy nilly put things in the questions like smashing the Premier League's record shirt sponsor deal when it's not quite true. Um, now, Man United are also looking for a new sponsor for the training ground and the training kit. Is that because no one company could possibly afford to sponsor everything? Um, no, I, th- I think Manchester United are very smart in that they take a bite-sized chunk approach to their sponsorship arrangements, and rather than having one sponsor for everything, so, so there, there would be there would be relatively few companies who would be able to afford to do that. The fact that they've uh, they've got separate sponsors for their training kit as opposed to the first team kit, um, I think is just indicative of a of a club that has a global fan base and can shift units of of, of a variety of things. And, and and they've done their sums and they they felt that by having, uh, I think it's Aon, the uh, the American company who used to sponsor um, the, uh, the the front of shirt deals. Um, and, and have a look at Aon and Aon on Scandal. Or Google that if you if you uh, if you're interested in their financial history. Um then uh, it, it's, it's simply more lucrative and, and you, you've got to give them credit for that in, in exactly the same way as they will have a, a mobile phone sponsor in Spain, in Thailand, in Indonesia, rather than having a global one. They've, they've worked out that it's, it's more, more beneficial financially to, to have a number of local deals than, than have a global ones for particular products. I wasn't planning to Google Aeon and Scandal, but I've, I've got a spare half hour this afternoon. I might, might that, I might fit that in between my nap and tea. Um, questions, Kieran. We have some good questions this week, as ever. And the first one comes from David McCutcheon. And David McCutcheon starts with a thank you, Kieran, for all the shows. And he says, at the start of the pandemic, he started to walk to lose weight. And his son recommended he listen to us as he walked. And David says he's now running five kilometres to and from work and has lost three stones. David, congratulations. That is, is brilliant. Superb. It, it, you, you can't shake us off by running. You, you, <laughs> we're, we're in your ear. You can't, you can't get away from the voices in the head like that. Um, David's question is pertinent, given uh, that today we're seeing the opposite of a six-pointer old firm game. Um, and David says, with the gap between Rangers and Celtic having closed so dramatically recently, many Celtic fans are saying that Dermot Desmond should be thanked for all the money he's put in recently. However, says David, as said the club have been making great profits each year in the absence of Rangers. I would say he's taken more out of the club than he ever put in. Am I right? Um, no, D- Dermot Desmond hasn't really put anything in since, since around about 2005. He, he certainly stabilised the club when he first became involved with Celtic, um, and that allowed the club to to challenge Rangers. You know, Rangers were on a, on a roll um, under David, Sir David Murray, and uh, uh, that that sort of brought Scottish football more into a position of equilibrium. But uh, there's there's been no formal investment for many years. Uh, when when fourteen million pounds was put in, um, at the same time, that there's no evidence of money 
going out of the club. I mean, they do pay dividends on some shares, but they're not significant sums of money. What Celtic have tended to do when they have made profits is to reinvest the money into the squad and into the infrastructure. Um, now, it, it could be argued that uh, you know, perhaps if he had been more benevolent, uh, the the gap which Rangers have been able to reduce in, in recent years would have been so big that it would have made it far more of a challenge. Um, and, and looking at Rangers, some, something actually came through into my inbox about 20 minutes before we recorded the show. Um, and, and Rangers have just issued another £3 million worth of shares. So, so their investors are continuing to put money into the club the reason for that is that Rangers have been losing money. A Rangers' objective is is to try to to catch up with Celtic and then move on to a sustainable basis, but they're not quite there yet. Yeah, um, my sole interest in Rangers at the moment is the fact that out of the blue on various Scottish uh, football phone-ins, uh, Rangers representatives have suddenly started saying, Rangers are a bigger club than Crystal Palace, you know. It's like, oh, really? Oh, okay, why well, have you suddenly started saying that, I wonder? Even I could put two and two together on that one. It's interesting, David's question, though, because the way fans perceive a certain thing is often very different to the way you actually describe it. Because, you know, my, my, my Scottish family are all big Celtic fans, and I think they would have agreed with David McCutcheon that, you know, Dermot Desmond has been pumping loads of money in and taking loads of money out. And yet, as you, as you say, it's not, it's not exactly like that, is it? No, no. But that's why I'm the world's dullest man. I just look at numbers. Um, <laughs> yes, says the man who had to flee Moscow because the Russian mafia were on his tail. Um, don't oh, forget somebody else's tail that was an issue. <laughs> that's my fault. I, I firmly led myself down that cul-de-sac, didn't I? Um, we have a Scottish football special coming up in a couple of weeks' time with Neil Doncaster, uh, who's a Scottish football supremo. He doesn't like me saying that, but I don't often get to use the word supremo. So any questions for Neil, it's questions at priceoffootball.com. Simon Vickers has a much shorter question, and I'm not entirely sure we can answer it, which is a shame because I think most Premier League fans would love to know the answer to this. It's that Simon Vickers says, when fans are allowed back for the last two Premier League games of the season, please God, I added that, how will clubs decide which season ticket holders to let in? It's a good question, Kieran, but it's probably got 10 different answers, isn't it? Yes, yes. Um, and I don't think you, know, you and I are about as qualified as, as Simon is in terms of the answer. Um, but what I suspect will happen is that initially clubs will say those fans who perhaps have agreed to roll over their season tickets the next season, they'll have first dibs. Um, because they've already put money into the club as far as this season is concerned. Um, so that could be one model. The other model will be that um, all I can say with what's happened at Brighton is we've kept 25% of our season ticket money in the club with a view that if matches did return, that would be allocated against tickets because I think they felt that you know, if we were lucky, we might get four or five matches mm. taking place. Um, and uh, and and if you've got money uh, in, in a system such as that, it will then go to a lottery. Um, and, and certainly, you know, I think most clubs are, are trying to ensure that the the regular fans are not disadvantaged. I think what would be totally wrong would be uh, tickets allocated on the basis of who's bought the most expensive season tickets. So, you know, that would go against mm. the completely against the grain of of a way a football club should be run. Well, I think it's slightly difficult for Premier League because it's it's an odd number. If if everybody was allowed back in, that would be easy to deal with. If it's only a thousand, that would probably be easy to deal with. But at Sellers Park, for example, it's going to be six and a half thousand. So there's going to be a kind of grey area because I think a lot of clubs, Palace included, will probably do it on a points basis. So essentially, the loyalist fans over the last two, the ones that have been to away games and bought their season tickets early, will will get in. But then. You, there's probably 4,000 of them. So you've got 2,500 seats that you're trying to allocate between probably 15,000 people. And that's that's where it's going to get difficult. The first allocation will probably be quite easy for for clubs the size of Palace and Brighton. But you know, then it, it will get difficult. And of course, everyone, everyone wants to go to this game. Back in December, when some fans were allowed back in, people were still a bit nervous. But everyone would want to go to those two last games of the season, wouldn't they? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I think it'll be... It will be a quasi-national celebration of a return to uh, you know, some form of normal life, although clearly what's happening on the continent is is quite sobering stuff. Uh, it, it is, yes, of course, but 
we'll learn that it's not a vaccination pod either, is it, Kieran? So let's no, not talk. No. Let's not get into that. But um, I suspect the the atmosphere at the, the last Newcastle home game against Sheffield United could be a bit lively. But there you are. Um, our next question comes from Drew Agarg, and I really do hope I've pronounced both of those names correctly, Drew. Apologies if I haven't. Um, I did try. I occasionally Google things like how do you pronounce it. Google just said refer it to somebody else, basically, <laughs> with Drew Garg. Um, Drew says, I've had this question since the whole Project Big Picture proposals were uh, announced, including the proposals to allow clubs to sell their own overseas rights for certain games. Theoretically, could a state-owned club like Manchester City sell the rights to those matches in their own domestic market for any value they deem fit? Or would they be subject to the market value assessment that is done for sponsorship deals, for example? Um, I think it almost certainly that uh, we would have the equivalent of the the fair value assessment. Um, this is to stop related parties or quasi-related parties to the football club uh, putting in inflated figures. Um, there will certainly be a push from other clubs in the Premier League for that. And given that you need 14 votes, so, so ultimately it would, be, it would be a decision that would have to be voted on by uh, by the clubs in the Premier League, um, I, I think they will almost certainly say, because they will be scared of Manchester City all of a sudden selling the Abu, Abu Dhabi rights for £700 million a year or something crazy, mm-hmm. um, to, to, to try to maintain what we have at present in terms of yeah, front-of-shirt sponsorship, stadium sponsorship deals and things of that nature. Could you clarify something for me, Kieran, basically? Don't worry, it's about football, not about your personal life. But um, <laughs> uh, We quite often get taken to task by Man City fans who, who will tell us that technically Manchester City aren't a state-owned club. What What is their status? Do you, would you say they're a state-owned club or they're owned by a company that is owned by a state? They are, a, they are owned by... Uh, an overseas company, uh, ultimately. I mean, we, there is City Football Group, um, and and then there is Manchester City. City Football Group and Manchester City will be coming to that a little bit later. Mm. Um, then you've got to look at the controlling interests in respect of City Football Group, and, and that is uh, that that is uh, the, the Abu Dhabi authorities. So indirectly, yes, I, I, th- I think you know, people are being uh, being a little bit pedantic. Uh, ultimately, uh, Sheikh Mansour is the uh, is the is the owner is the controller of the club um, in terms of the, the the degree of investment into Manchester City? Okay, uh, City fans, uh, tweet him, not me. Alex <laughs> Alex Hall, and again, this is a, a related to City Group, but in a good way, I think. Alex Hall says multi club ownerships like the City Football Group have been mentioned many times on the pod recently, many times, along with the Bristol, Barcelona and Olympiacos model, which involves multiple sports. Uh, That probably should have been the Barcelona, Olympiacos and Bristol model, to be fair. As Kieran has described the benefits of such a setup, sharing and shifting costs can be a massive advantage, for example. Why are there not more setups like this? Is there a massive disadvantage that I'm missing? Um, Well, yeah, there is a massive uh, thing which which Alex perhaps should take into consideration. If you take a look at all of the football clubs which are owned by the City Football Group, collectively they cost the owners nine hundred and ninety nine million pounds to buy. Right. So yeah, unless you've got a huge amount of money sloshing round, um, then then it becomes a very expensive business. So you know. City Football Group, they have bought New York City, Melbourne City, the clubs in Mumbai and China and Japan and France, Belgium and so on. Every time they do that, that that, that, that means more money has to be found in order to, to make those purchases. Um, then you've got the operational losses. So Manchester City Football Club in 2019 made a profit of £10 million. That's great. Yeah, that's fine. Um you know, Alex is saying you know that there is the opportunity, and I'm not saying that this is the case with Manchester City. Um, there is the opportunity to to allocate costs to some of those other clubs in, in an environment where financial fair play doesn't apply. The City Football Group lost eighty two million pounds in 2019, so somebody has got to fund those losses. So if your objective is to make money out of a football club, 
then you know why why go to all this trouble because all you do is you you might satisfy financial fair play in one country but overall it's costing you a fortune to do so elsewhere around the world um if your objectives are are broader than monetary um which i think it is fair to say that is the case with uh, the city football group mm. then then those losses are just seen as a as an occupational hazard and there's probably quite a big distinction isn't there Kieran between the city football group and someone like Bristol who owns a rugby club as well or Barcelona who own a handball club as well isn't there um yes yeah i mean yeah M- manchester city are uh are are clearly linked to the owners uh, in terms of profile and things of this nature barcelona are a sporting entity um, and is a members only club bristol city is uh is the personal fiefdom of of the owner, uh, who, who's been incredibly generous to to the city of Bristol, and he's a uh, yeah, he's he's a Bristol fan uh, and and a sports fan, and he and he's not necessarily keener on football than rugby. He just wants to see success in the city. Now, Kieran, I've got a pronunciation dilemma with this next one because it's it's L O U I S, which I would pronounce Louis. But I've got a mate who spells his first name L-O-U-I-S, who pronounces it Louis. I've got another one who pronounces it Lewis. Uh, despite the fact we tell him it should be L-E-W-I-S in that case, he says he can argue, he can pronounce his name whatever way he wants, which is a fair argument. In the, so I don't know, Louis or Lewis. Let's go Louis. Louis Wishlade uh, says, Do you know why Fulham didn't sell the players they bought for very high fees and wages in 2018-19 and instead chose to loan some of them out in the 1920 championship season that followed. Is it because they couldn't sell those players for a loss without breaching financial fair play rules? And it's a really interesting question from Louis, because Fulham have got a lot of loan players this season as well, and then most of them are, are playing, aren't they? Is that sensible? Yeah, uh, it, it, it's yes and no when it comes to uh, the, the, the loan market. Um, Fulham had a... Uh, Fulham spent £118 million on player signings in the year that they were promoted in 2018-19. And clearly that that didn't work to the extent that they wished and they were subsequently relegated. That meant that they had a lot of players on big, big contracts. And the trouble is, if you've got a player who's on 50, 60 grand a week, there's a limited number of clubs who are willing to sign him, especially if he's not proven to be particularly successful in the Premier League the previous season. So when it came to the issue of uh, what were they going to do for 2019-20, the players would have been available, but nobody was willing to to pay the wages. So therefore, what Fulham did, they, they, they made a... You know, uh, commercial decision that it's better to get a player somewhere else and and you get the other club paying half the wages and paying a small loan fee than it is to have him sitting around the uh him sitting around the training ground or in a bad mood you, you don't want to end up with the the position of Sunderland with Jack Rodwell or or Wolves uh with I've forgotten his name um but you know, the, the players who are on huge contracts, who are unhappy, who for whatever reason have fallen out of favour. So uh, the, the rationale behind using the loan markets is that uh, it, it reduces the, the costs of the club in terms of having to pay his full wages. In terms of losses for financial fair play purposes, um, that could be a further issue because if you've signed a player for £30 million on a four-year contract, at the end of that first year, after taking away amortisation, his value is £22.5 million. Um, it, and if you can't get him for 22 if you can't sell him for £22.5 million, then you're going to sell him at a loss. That could mean that you breach, you're in breach of FFP. So you're actually better off keeping him on the books for another 12 months, putting him out on loan somewhere, getting a wee bit of money back, and then at the end of year two, his value in the books is £15 million. And from from an FFP purpose, if you then sell him at the end of year two, there, there's a there's a smaller loss going through. Mm. It's not like you to forget a name, did you? Did you have a second pint of water last night, Kieran, to celebrate? Uh, well, it's Jamie O'Hara. I've just remembered. Oh, they, <laughs> oh that's a shame because I was gonna <laughs> I was gonna get Ali to dub it and get Guy to 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 put it in, see if anybody, <laughs> see if anybody noticed. <laughs> well, we still can, Kieran, Jack Rodwell, Jamie O'Hara. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and my wife doesn't thank god she doesn't listen to this pod um she does guys she does she, she was probably her that gave guy the five-star review 
Uh, Dionysios Pelikis has been in touch. And Dionysios, it's a great name, isn't it? It's uh, uh, Dionysios has a question on the Qatar World Cup. Uh, join the club. Joy, joy, we all have many questions on the Qatar World Cup. If Dionysios says, hypothetically, a National Football Association decided to boycott the 2022 tournament, um, and as Dionysios points out, there is no shortage of potential reasons for such a boycott, from the treatment of LGBTQ plus people to the conditions faced by migrant workers. Would that National Football Association face any financial repercussions? And if enough countries boycotted, would it affect the tournament's profitability? Sadly, Dionysios, that probably will remain a hypothetical question, but it's a very valid one, isn't it? This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer. You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash price of football. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash price of football and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash price of football. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is the show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Yeah, I mean, you and I are both old enough to remember the Olympics in mm-hmm. Moscow in 1980, I think it was, mm-hmm. and then the, the subsequent Olympics in 1984, which the first of which were, were boycotted by the West due to Russia invading somewhere. Afghanistan. It was Afghanistan, at the time. It was, it was Afghanistan, yeah. It was Afghanistan, yeah. We'll get Ali to dub that in as well, if you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, as, as far as the authorities are concerned, I, th- I think we need to, to separate it into two entities. First of all, there's FIFA itself. FIFA make their money from the broadcast deals that they have signed with global broadcasters. Well, if there's a World Cup taking place with, you know, with, with the 32 teams or however many it is uh, in next year's tournament, um, they will say, we've delivered. So therefore, you're getting no money back. Um, when it comes to ticket sales, that those tickets will be sold well in advance um, and, and FIFA will, to a certain extent, be guaranteed that revenue coming in. Then there's the commercial deals. The commercial deals for the World Cup have already been signed off with the with FIFA's global partners. So, so FIFA will not be worse off, uh, regardless of any form of boycott. We then come to the Qatari uh, World Cup committee, the, effectively the the local organisation. Um, the, the World Cup's going to lose money for Qatar because the, the setup costs are so high. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been to Qatar. I've, I've seen her at some of the stadiums. I've done a little bit of teaching there in, in, with regards to, to football issues. And um, it, it's, it's not expected to, to be profitable um, in, in the context of the, the overall infrastructure investment. If, if we take a look at Qatar, it's got a total population of 2.8 million, mm. of whom only 300,000 are citizens. You know, Qatar's got a very good, sorry, very big um, migrant population in forms of um, you know, infrastructure people, professional services and things of that nature. Um, the total capacity of the stadia, uh, in Qatar is three hundred eighty thousand. So is that so that you know if 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 every Qatari citizen um, went to to went to a match, there would still be plenty of spaces. Um, now, t- at least two of those uh, stadiums are going to be dismantled after mm. the uh, after the tournament. 
but uh, you know, in terms of making money, that was never an objective. Uh, the The intention was to to showcase Qatar as a country, as a as a destination for trade, tourism, and things of that nature. So, I, it, it it will possibly increase the losses if if uh, if the big teams don't attend, then there's going to be fewer fans from those big teams. Um, but I I think it's highly unlikely there will be a boycott. Um, you know. It, it, Made made reference to the LGBTQ plus community. Well, you know, I, you know, I, it's, it's been well known that I used to to teach in in Russia. Mm. Um, unfortunately, there the attitude towards people uh, of uh, you know different sexual persuasions is is very very hostile. It, it's uh, it, it's it's very depressing to see the uh, somewhat uh, archaic uh, mentality of of not just some of the people there, but also the politicians. I, I, I was in Qatar uh, performing uh, for uh, Exiles not long before the World Cup uh, was agreed. Um, no one was interested. It's just, it's just, it's not just the the reactionary nature of some of the attitudes of the the government there. It's the fact that football simply isn't a national sport and won't be afterwards. It's still beggars belief that the World Cup is going there. I also, I can't see them filling the stadium. I, I think if they ever have full stadium for any of the games, it will be because local school children are busting for nothing. Because my my sense is, and it's obviously not helped by COVID. I don't know many f- football fans that are particularly interested in in going there. I mean, we're only a year out from the tournament, and normally by now people would have started booking. They'd have been getting excited. You'd be seeing all sorts of WhatsApp groups. I just, it's for the once in my life. I, I'm not looking forward to it. It shouldn't be there. It's probably for the best that we hadn't started this pod um, at two years earlier because I think all we would have talked about <laughs> would have been that World Cup. So let's move on before we fall down that trap again. Steve Cutler is a Bristol Rovers fan and, and reminds us that Bristol Rovers have been on a dodgy financial footing for as long as he can remember. Uh, but Steve's question is based around the relatively recent announcement from the owner that they converted uh, club debts into shares. Uh, Steve says this was hailed as an excellent idea, but as an ever-sceptical lower league football fan, I'd love to know your thoughts. Uh, and I presume Steve is talking to you, Kieran, there, not me. <laughs> um, well, Br- Bristol Rovers have been losing, you know, on, a- on average, uh, you know, fifty to £60,000 a week uh, for the last you know, three or four years. So it's... Uh, it's further evidence that uh, football is, is is a tough industry, um, and and the only way that those losses can be covered is either by selling players, but these profits are, are after player sales, um, and uh, or, or the alternative is for the owner to put money into the club to underwrite those losses, and you can put those loss you can put those uh, those covering costs in via loans or or shares. Um, Initially, some some of the investment was in the form of loans. I think realistically, uh, the the owner took the view that if you are a football club owner, your behaviour is the equivalent of being the bank of mum and dad. I.e., mm-hmm. you you give you give money to your kids, lo- loan it nominally, but both parties there's an un- there's an unwritten uh, there's an unwritten acknowledgement that the money is never going to be repaid. Um, Bristol Rovers would not be in a position to to repay the owners the the amount that has been lent historically, um, and, and therefore what's been happening here is is, is more of a, a housekeeping exercise. So it's uh, it's, it's probably a, a better it's probably a, a better thing than a badder thing uh, would be my assessment uh, to, if, if Steve is uh, uh, trying to get uh, some, some sort of feeling for this. Um, Shares are what we refer to as irredeemable, and therefore can yeah. You know, there's never any obligation for shareholders to get their money back from uh, the uh, from the club. Whereas a loan, uh, but by the nature of a loan, normally has some form of uh, repayment date in the future. So by converting loans into shares, it least means that either this owner or and you know this this is based on zero evidence whatsoever. Um, if I was selling a football club. I would probably convert the the loans into shares um, just to make it uh, appear better for from the point of view of a potential new owner. Because what they don't want to do is to take over the club and still be obliged to uh, redeem loans to the the previous owner. It, it, it makes the it makes the balance sheet look better. 
Mm. An ex-girlfriend called me irredeemable once. Um, <laughs> just as we were going through the process of going from girlfriend to ex-girlfriend. Um, <laughs> probably not a good thing, is it? Um, Simon Ordover. Uh, has a question, which I think is a really interesting one, Kieran, actually. Simon says, is there a benefit to being a shareholder in the Premier League rather than a franchisee, as clubs are in the MLS, for example? Yeah, I I thought this was um, intriguing. Mm. I mean, one of the advantages of being a shareholder is that uh, there there is more flexibility in, in the sense that uh, you know, we, we have promotion and relegation to the Premier League. So therefore, if you are a shareholder of you know, Huddersfield or Sheffield United or Brighton or Palace and, and, and you've come from uh, the lower tier of football, then by having an investment in the club at a, an earlier stage, potentially um, the club can be sold as a Premier League club um, at, at, a, at a higher price and you can make an awful lot of money from that. So that would be one of the benefits of uh, being a shareholder. In in theory, um, your club is is your fiefdom, and, and within reason, you're you're free to to do with it as as you wish. So if you want to put more money in in the form of shares or loans, um, as as we've seen with Roman Abramovich, as we've seen with Sheikh Mansour, as we've seen you know, with other clubs as well, um, then there, there's nobody else that you have to ask permission from. Whereas if you were a franchisee, that would not necessarily be the case. And, and you might have to get the permission of the other franchisees within the MLS or the, the governor of, uh, of the governor of the MLS, the general manager, whatever it's going to be. Um, one, the advantages of a franchise model um, is that if you're in a franchise, um, you know, whereas we as football fans and also some football club owners, uh, our objective is to see us win matches, potentially win trophies, uh, achieve promotion, qualification for European competitions and things of that nature. Um, if you're a franchisee, the, the aim is to make money. Um, so you know, that balance and, and what we've got in, uh, in the Premier League at present is, is a mixture of some owners who view clubs as a franchise, and I would put there, uh, and this isn't a criticism of the American model, but mainly the the American owners. So FSG at Liverpool, the Glazers at Manchester United, Stan Kroenke um, at uh, at Arsenal, and, and ALK at, at Burnley. Their objective is for those clubs to make money, and therefore they make money on the back of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that doesn't sit easily when you've got the likes of you know, Sheikh Mansour, Roman Abramovich, who who just are just in it for the the love of winning things. You know, it is a trophy asset. Um, in, in a franchise arrangement, everybody's got that same objective, and and everybody's got the focus on the bottom line. So therefore, you're more likely to have things such as wage caps and things of this nature. We, we've just seen this week uh, the the NFL has announced their their new TV distribution rights in the states, and the first implications for that. Well, okay, there'll be some tweaks to the wage cap, but still, an awful lot of money is going to come through to club owners. Hmm. Sorry, Kieran, I was just putting my cup of tea down there. Um, so I thought you mean order order there. <laughs> no, it's, I put it, I put the cup of tea down harder than normal because it's colder than it was forty five minutes ago. Um, Sam, it's <laughs> just a little just a little insight into the domestic life of the price of football production team there um it's not even the price of football mug and god knows we've got enough of them to use uh sam woodruff tells us that he's a long time norwich fan uh in general everybody will take your word for the fact that you've been supporting your club for a long time uh i'll be more surprised if i got a question saying i've been supporting mk don since tuesday um and i'm beginning to regret it but anyway sam is a long time norwich fan and Sam is really enjoying the current performance on and off the pitch, playing attractive football, clearing our debts and coping during the pandemic. However, says Sam, without rich owners, ours are the third poorest in the championship, apparently. And using a sustainable model, could Norwich ever challenge at the top end of the Premier League? Well, I'll give my short answer to that, Kieran, which is no. And then happily sit back and let you contradict me. Um, could they do it in the short term? Yes, they could. Oh, uh, really? we, we saw, oh, um, you know, I, I can remember Reading doing extremely well in, in their first season in the in the Premier League. Um, Sheffield, Sheffield United had a good first season. So, um, but what tends to happen is ultimately football is a talent game. 
um, and uh, the the more you invest in talent, the 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 the, the greater your the chances of getting positive results on the pitch. So you can have a scenario where a club punches above its weight financially, um, and has a fantastic season. The chances of that being repeated on a regular basis are mm. relatively remote. You know, we, we remember we did see Leicester City win the Premier League uh, in 2016 on a, a budget which was that of a fraction of the um, the other clubs, yeah, the, the other large clubs. Why did they do that? Well, yeah, they recruited uh, N'Golo Kante. They recruited Jamie Vardy for you know for, for, for buttons and. For that twelve months, they 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 were the best team in the country, and they deservedly won mm. the Premier League. What did they immediately do? Well, you know that that side, you know, and Kante, Kante left. Um, they they did very well to get to the quarterfinals of the Champions League the following season. But they then had yeah, they sacked their manager because they they were they were in the bottom half of the Premier League. So on a short-term basis, yes, if you've got a United dressing room, if you've got a manager who's a very good uh, motivator of players, um, I think that then then for a period of you know a couple of years, you, you can punch above your weight. Eventually, either the manager goes elsewhere because he's attracted or he becomes attractive to other clubs or and or the players do the same. Yeah, the problem is, Kieran, for Sam and other Norwich fans, is that we've got a very recent example of an attractive footballing Norwich side coming out of the Premier League and then their ownership showing no interest whatsoever in spending the money to stay there. Yes, yeah, I mean, certainly Norwich's, uh, Norwich's um, model, which which I would describe as an air shot, is, is in some ways similar to that of the Burnley owners. When, when Burnley were promoted to the Premier League quite a few years ago, they they again made little or no uh, investment in the squad, um, took the money from the Premier League, and used that when they were relegated to build up a more sustainable approach. And they immediately came back up to the Premier League. So if, if Norwich are taking that approach, then then it might work. You know, as, as you know, I'm I'm a big fan of. Uh, Sean Dyche and, and what he has achieved at Burnley with that type of strategy, um, and and there's no reason why Norwich couldn't do the same. Mm-hmm. Nathan Braithwaite says that Millwall recently wore "Kick It Out" instead of Husky chocolate on their shirts. Is it likely that Millwall have had to refund some sponsorship money to Husky? No, um, under I think both the the Premier League and the EFL. Uh, deals. Um, you are allowed once a season to wear a shirt which uh, is linked to the, the uh, normally a club charity. Right. So yeah, we, we've seen Liverpool do that. I've seen other clubs do that. Um, and uh, you know, Millwall uh, use this for kick it out, and you, you've got to you, you know, it, it's 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 a, it's a good thing to do. So it, it shows because we we become so blasé. I'm, I'm so I'm so used to seeing American Express on the front of a shirt at, at the Amex that mm. at the Amex Stadium that it's it's not going to make me like or dislike um, the the company any more than before so therefore is is it going to make a difference and, and and i used to i used to work in the post room at american express uh it was, it was my first ever job on 30 pounds a week wow. um yeah those those were the days kevin those were the days and and then the following year they gave me a pay rise because i was good with numbers and i made fewer mistakes than the other post post office boys <laughs> What? <laughs> what, what? Living oh, the dream. Living yeah, the dream. Yeah, <laughs> those with it. There aren't. There's only a limited number of mistakes you can make, isn't there? Putting letters into pigeonholes. Oh, I guess. Yeah. It's um. So you say that about American Express. I've I've resolutely boycotted them ever since they took over as your shirt sponsor. Uh, helped by the fact that they've resolutely refused to give me a credit card in the first place for quite some years. So it's a it's a relationship we're both quite happy with. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm saying with virgins. (laughs) Um, Also, I suppose as well, and it's an interesting question from Nathan, but it it reflects quite well on the regular sponsor, doesn't it? Because people will go, oh, that's nice. They've given up a week's week's worth of sponsorship for for Kick It Out. So it's it's not going to negatively affect the the regular sponsor, is it, by doing that? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. and and, uh, anything which raises the profile of 
charities and organisations such as Kick It Out is has uh, got to be a positive. So, you know, absolutely. fair play to all involved. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tony McNeary, and this is a question after your heart, Kieran. So you've been looking forward. <laughs> I sort of deliberately kept this one down at the end to keep your attention. Uh, Tony McNeary says a COVID-induced loss in revenue is never going to be helpful to any club's finances. But in Spurs' case, there seems to have been some exceptional movements in certain costs that helped to push 2019's £87 million profit into 2020's £68 million loss. Tottenham's total operating expenses increased by £83 million, and of that, £46 million was an increase in depreciation. Why would that be the case? Well, d- depreciation is similar to amortisation, except it applies to um, infrastructure assets. So in uh, in in 2020, Spurs had a full season in the new stadium, and that new stadium cost uh, yeah, well over a billion pounds. So therefore, you depreciate the new stadium for the whole of the year. Whereas if we take a look at 2019, for the for the first probably two thirds, three quarters of that season, Spurs were of course still playing at Wembley. So therefore, they, they weren't depreciate. You only you only start to depreciate an asset when you start to generate money from it, as far as the accounts are concerned. So in 2019, Spurs depreciated their, the new Tottenham Hotspur Stadium for three months of the year. And when it came to 2020, they did that for 12 months of the year, therefore increasing the depreciation cost. Mm, yeah, judging by the mood of Tottenham fans at the moment, Spurs may have to be fork out to get rid of the manager by the look of things. Mm. Um, James Golk takes us from the top half of the Premier League to the lower end of non-league football. And James says, what are the reasons, uh, benefits of certain players having dual registration in non-league? And this is, o- is this only allowed at certain levels? Um, yes, it is. The, the, the rationale behind dual registration is that on any one weekend, you can play for one of two clubs. Um, now, this tends to be for players who are on a non-contract basis, i.e. they've not signed a, a 12-month uh, deal or a 10-month deal, if it was the National League, um, for a particular club. And and the, the logic behind this is, you know, if, if you are a football player at you know levels three to six or whatever it's going to be um then what do you want to do each saturday you want to play football mm. now it could be that you've uh, the, the manager at club a says look mate you know you're not you're not quite in my plans this weekend um and the player says well okay well i'm not getting paid by you anyway you know, at best i'm doing is getting boot money um i'll go and play for for club b now the the only thing that has to be the case is that if you do have dual registration you've got to be registered in different leagues so you can't go and play for an opponent uh, um against your team or things of that nature um from from the player's point of view um he's getting playing time you know, if, if you're if you're a if you're you know, amateur or quasi-amateur footballer, or um, what do you want to do? You want to play football. Um, so, so you go and play for a different team. That means that you're getting a bit of experience. It could be that uh, you know the club A is still keeping an eye on you. They've got somebody in the crowd. Um, from from the club's point of view, it keeps it keeps the players a bit happier, and, and also it's it's a you know ultimately a match is a form of training. So you know you, you're getting some exercise. Um, so so that's that's the logic behind that. But as soon as you move to a scenario where you sign a formal 12-month you know, semi-professional or professional contract, um, you wouldn't be able to to do that anymore. Mm. We started, Kieran, with one big news story from the Greater Manchester area. So let's finish with another quite big news story from the Greater Manchester area, which I want to discuss because it involves one of your closest friends in football, Steve Dale. Yes, uh, Steve Dale tried to uh, effectively take uh, claim the intellectual property or the trademark um, in respect of of the crest uh, of of the club and effectively the crest of the town. Um, the uh, the opposition club AFC Berry um, wasn't happy about that because they had a crest which was broadly similar, and there was in danger of. Uh, uh, losing the right to to put that crest on their shirts, and uh, Steve Dale lost. So, uh, yeah, get, get, suck suck that one up, Stevie boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm. I've got no sympathy for you whatsoever. <laughs> you remember we had this discussion in our last pod, Kieran, about the 
the reasons why we may not be winning as many awards as we perhaps should do in the serious world of financial football podcasting. Phrases like "suck that up, Stevie boy" are not helping, Kieran. I'm going to, I'm going to much, <laughs> much as that should be the headline for this spot. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure producer guy is, is hot dialing the Swiss Rambo as we speak, you know, trying to renegotiate his fee. I just, I just really can't imagine the circumstances by which Swiss Rambo would say, suck that up, Stevie boy. But it's a sentiment I heartily endorse. And the only reason we included that story was that it had the phrase, Steve Dale lost. And it, it's, um, it's a small victory, Kieran, in a world where football at clubs at that level are not getting many small victories. So I was very happy to end on that. If you have any questions for us about any level of football finance at all, uh, and in particular, if you have any questions for us for that Scottish special we have coming up with Neil Doncaster, email us on questions at priceoffootball.com. And in the meantime, I shall let Mr. Three Points, Three Goals, Three Pints of Water Maguire, it's clearly still off his face, judging by his outburst there about sucking up Stevie Boy, uh, say goodbye. Well, once again, folks, thanks for the feedback um, and the uh, all, all the kind words that you send to us. Um, if you are enjoying the show, if you if you want to go and press that uh, that big purple icon button on the Apple Podcasts or or similar with Spotify or Google Podcasts, if if you could give us a review, uh, five stars, please. If you if you're enjoying it. Um, even if you're not enjoying it, we'd still, still be happy with a five-star review, to be perfectly true. It, it doesn't matter what you say. You could you can say, you know, when are they going to get the Swiss Ramble in for a, a degree of professionalism onto the show? We, we don't care. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it simply helps us uh, in terms of negotiating with uh, potential guests and, and from, from the business side of things, which goes way above the head of uh, myself and Kevin. So until then, uh, stay safe and... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm still trying to come to terms uh, with a match where the actual goals scored <laughs> by Brighton over Albion exceeded our XG. Yeah. Do you know what, Kieran? After 18 months of dealing with our listeners, I've got the slight suspicion that producer guy is going to get a lot more five-star reviews now, isn't he? <laughs> yes. Uh, I know how this thing works. Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. Welcome to another round of Drawing Board or Miro Board. Today, we talk brainstorms with UX designer Brian. Let's go. First question. You thought you'd see everyone's idea in the team brainstorm, but you've got a grand total of one. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board, right? Because in Miro, the team can add ideas now or later. And with Privacy Mode, we can keep them anonymous until they're good to share. Correct. Next, you need the best way to explain your idea, but all you have is a few sticky notes. Drawing Board or Miro Board? Drawing Board, because, you know, in Miro, I could record videos, add text, images, links, and digital sticky notes, of course. Present my thoughts the way I want. Right again! Now, you're looking for a past idea you thought was just genius. Only you could find... Oh! There it is. Drawing board or Miro. Our finished and unfinished work lives in one place. And he's one. Join over 60 million people getting ideas noticed in Miro brainstorms. Get your first three boards for free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.